So I would like to continue talking about these five so-called object ascertaining or specifying factors, these tools of human development and liberation, which I started to talk of two days ago. They ascertain a specific aspect of the object or a thing or a situation and they are aspiration, appreciation, mindfulness or awareness or a collection, concentration or steadiness of mind, intelligence or insight or wisdom. By themselves they can be either wholesome or unwholesome or neutral depending on the intention, depending on the other qualities of mind that arise together with them. And again here we'll mostly look at their wholesome aspects and their relevance in terms of our practice. So when there is a steady and continuous mindfulness the quality or the factor of concentration or samadhi arises the fourth of those five factors the definition says concentration is a mental factor that is capable of dwelling one pointedly on an object for a sustained period of time. We all are endowed with a certain measure of concentration. For example, we can listen to someone talking, speaking quite one-pointedly as long as we find it interesting. In practice, we connect with that natural ability and then strengthen it, develop it, and that aspect of practice that develops just the staying with something that is called samatha meditation or calm abiding it's a kind of a concentration practice so at the time at those times when you're just on the breath or just on a sensation for a while then in a way at that time we're mostly strengthening concentration. There are other aspects to it, but the holding of the attention in that one place, that's the concentration. Concentration can be cultivated to quite incredible depth into states of deep absorption and deep incredible one-pointedness. These states of deep concentration and absorption are called jhanas. Now here's a possible problem that might arise listening to this talk, especially the part on concentration. I feel that it could be helpful and clarifying to talk about deep concentration and that's why I'm going to do it. Yet I know from my own experience and from that of others that it is very easy to take descriptions like the ones I'll be giving here 
and use them to compare oneself, to compare one's practice against it. And then obviously find one's practice insufficient, not good enough, and even get discouraged because one does that comparison. Yet this explanation is really meant as an inspiration. Inspiration that sort of points and mentions, talks about the amazing possibilities of meditation. Even though it's not levels that we'll reach in two weeks retreat. So I like to talk about this and I like you to keep in mind that uh, it has a lot to do with what we're doing here, the concentration, but it does not mean that um, when we speak of the deepest possibilities in our practice we need to compare ourselves to it. Now in the West, since we are open to many traditions, we have access to many different uh, ways of Buddhist Dharma being expounded, explained and practiced. Um, Sometimes there can be some confusion because different traditions use the same concept for different things. And in with respect to concentration and especially to those deep absorptions or jhanas that is happening quite a bit lately and I'd like to just try to clarify some of the confusion around these concepts and the states they refer to or perhaps I'll explain why it is confusing now usually this term absorption or jhana refers to concentrative absorption to very deep states of one point, the concentration. But in some schools, mostly in Burma, the term vipassana jhana is also sometimes used. Now this term does not refer to concentrative absorptions, but to progressive stages of insight. The way it's taught and experienced in many schools of Theravada, vipassana meditation. And I'm not talking about that, I'm just mentioning for those who are interested that that's one way this word is used. Now more commonly jhanas refer to deep levels of one-pointed concentration. But here too there seems not to be much agreement as to what these levels or stages exactly are. It seems that the most exalted, we can say, exalted standards are used in certain Tibetan traditions, but also in some Theravada texts they use. In this first, a yogi develops through the ten stages of samatha meditation, where the full attainment refers to a state of concentration where the yogi's mind can stay one-pointedly on the object for as long as three days and nights without effort. And without wavering in the slightest. And one's body and mind is blissful, radiant, buoyant, and needs no food or sleep while in this state. So you see why we don't want to compare ourselves with that. Yet it is quite amazing to even to know that, you know, this is possible. To know that the mind can be so powerful. Now, according to this school, that is not yet the jhana. 
Okay? It's only what is called access samadhi or upachara samadhi. The level that is said to be needed to go into the actual first absorption or first jhana and array of them. And then from there it takes again great effort to actually get into the first jhana if somebody wants to do that. It's not something that is necessary to gain insight. Now in the first jhana, in this kind of system, the yogi sense stores, the senses are shut off or perhaps disconnected and it's said that one could shout at the yogi or shake her or even explode a bomb nearby and she wouldn't notice a thing. Not only the Tibetan tradition but also the Theravada, Vishuddhimaka states, the jhanas are attained by transcending the plane of the senses. Now from the first jhana the yogi by stages goes deeper until the fourth jhana is attained and from there one might even go into the formless, so-called formless absorptions of jhanas of six, seven, and eight. Also from some of the, and that's where it gets really far out, from some of the initial jhanas or absorptions, when a yogi has the obviously very uncommon ability necessary, then he or she can develop the psychic powers or idis or siddhis. And um, we don't need to discuss whether really whether they exist or not. We don't need to believe them. They're not necessary. They're not liberating. Um, still interesting, one of my teachers who has spent um, about eight years in a meditation center in Burma, he's somebody really curious. He wanted to know about all these things. And I think he, in terms of concentration, could reach certain depths, but he said himself he didn't have that kind of special ability of concentration to find out for himself. So he trained all these people who had real special gifts in concentration, he said. So he made them attain, you know, some of the absorptions. He said, I just wanted to know whether it is true what is said in the book. So apparently a number of them reached whatever he taught them and from there he said he taught them the different psychic powers and um, you know some he taught this one and some the other one and he would ask him now did it work and he said you know there was one yogi she would or he I don't know what she or he would appear in front of him right out of nowhere appear in front of him for the interview you know and sort of comment on what how far she had gone and then disappear again. Now, I don't know. <laughs> but this teacher is not somebody who, you know, just makes up things. So, I don't know. I definitely know that the mind's capacities are amazing. Very obviously, all this takes very unusual minds, very powerful minds, and great commitment to long-term practice. And it's definitely not something one develops in a few days or a few weeks of retreat. Now this seems quite clearly structured, but things are not as clear as this.
there are other Asian Eastern traditions where concentration is practiced and absorption or jhanas are attained, yet they seem not quite as deep as the description just given. It's not that they're not deep, but not so incredibly uh, high standards. They're very powerful and impressive states of meditation, again, but they seem to be within the realm of the senses, even though one is really absorbed one could still be reached maybe by shaking a person or calling them. And generally speaking, for certain experienced practitioners, this can be attained or approximated maybe in a few months of retreat or whatever. Again, there's no rule that varies a lot from person to person. Now, more recently, one also hears of certain Western schools where people during seven or ten day retreats or a bit longer supposedly are practicing the jhanas and according to some descriptions that seems to be a bit of an overstatement to even speak of jhanas in these cases unless somebody is absolutely unusual kind of uh, person it is not really realistic to speak of jhanas in you know, what can be attained in a week of a course with many people. And perhaps one could speak of concentration practice rather than jhanas. But of course, deepening one's concentration, sharpening one's focus and steadying one's mind is always useful and it's always beneficial. One of the interesting functions of deeper concentration is that it inhibits or suppresses the hindrances temporarily. That is, as long as the concentration lasts. And this means while we are quite concentrated in meditation, desire, aversion, doubt, restlessness, distraction, drowsiness, and all the other unwholesome fact, mind factors do either arise less or do not arise at all. And I think that's also partly why it gets easier after two or three days. Um, Christina mentioned that um, our sense of self sort of has found its comfortable place again and its security, and I'm sure that is why they become less uh, strong after two or three days. But I also think that concentration uh, helps to have them be less active and if concentration is very deep and you can tell even if you have a three minute very deep concentration all that stuff isn't there and as it you know gets a little flatter again it comes back so it's also good to know that concentration has that power though it's only suppressing temporarily it's not in any way uprooting any of this but it's obviously extremely helpful in meditation because it will allow us to see a bit more clearly to see things as they are and gain some insights. Now here's a description of the experience of a jhana and I think in this case it's a metta jhana. There is tremendous ease and comfort of body and mind blissful with a special lightness the nature of the mind is sparkling and radiant, exquisitely calm, accompanied by vast stillness, 
and pervasive silence and the deep sense that everything is absolutely okay. There's a piercing laser-like quality of knowing with no slipping into distraction, distractive thoughts or images ever. The mind is completely filled with love only, with the powerful sense of being in the presence of the divine. Not bad, isn't it? In his chapter on meditation, Shantideva describes the suitable places where yogis would go to practice meditative concentration or samatha, or also called calm abiding. He says, Therefore I shall dwell alone, happy and contented with few difficulties, in very joyful and beautiful forests, living in houses of big flat rocks, cooled by the sandal-scented moonlight, fanned by the peaceful silent forest breeze, pacifying all distractions. I actually think we pretty much have the conditions here. In deepening concentration and in absorbing the mind, there are five factors or qualities of the mind at work. And because they have to do with absorption of jhana, they're called jhana or jhanic factors. They are aspiration or applied thought, vitakha. The second, appreciation or sustained thought, vichara. And I think this too might sound familiar to you now. They're the first two of the five factors that we're looking here. The first two I've been talking about two days ago. Third one is rapture or bliss, piti. Fourth one is happiness or sukha. And the fifth one is one-pointedness or ekagata. And as I mentioned in the other talk, The first, aspiration, vitaka, is that which aims and throws the mind on the object. While, while vichara, or appreciation, sustains the mind staying on the object. So again, I'll illustrate these two first. The first is like the striking of a bell. The second is like its reverberation or the first is said is like a bird's initial flapping of the wings while the second which are our appreciation is like its smooth flight the first vitaka aspiration is like the hand that grasps a dish the second one which are is like the hand that wraps it So both these factors of mind are very relevant in our meditation here right now. And it's helpful over and over to make a clear effort to contact the object of in-breath, out-breath, sensation or sound or whatever, right when it arises. Be with it right when it begins. And make whatever effort it takes to stay with the object as long as it's there. You could also imagine resting in the object as long as it's there attentively, with interest, resting in the object as long as it's there. Or you could think of 
rubbing the in-breath, not just sort of looking at it, but rubbing it with the mindfulness. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. We feel there's more distance, so it just means being with it as good as we can. To hold, to sustain the contact. If in such a way we deepen the concentration, and that's mostly when you're really practicing in a way of concentration where one stays with one object no matter what, for the purpose of jhana, then doing that, the next factor of rapture or bliss will arise. It's really an intense interest or fascination or joy intense interest that arises from just being totally absorbed in that one thing. It's not that the thing needs to be interesting, it's the totality of being with that brings up that factor of interest and fascination and joy. And there are five kinds that are listed. It's thrilling bliss that raises the hairs on the body, causes the flesh to creep. There's flooding now there's in instantaneous bliss that comes and goes like a flash of lightning. There's flooding bliss that breaks over the body like waves in the seashore. There's uplifting bliss that is like the floating in the air, like a cotton fluff. And there's pervading bliss that suffuses the whole body with thrilling sensations, like a flood that overflows a pond. Though our meditation here might not always, or not often, be so blissful, it's really helpful to be clear and to remember what it is that creates intense interest, and that it is possible to create that kind of interest, even fascination, which in a way is the same quality of mind as rapture. It's sort of the precursor of rapture. There's a very close link between our fullness of attention and interest. And it's something you really want to try out. Whenever you notice that there's a lack of interest, it's probably a sign telling you that you're half-hearted or mechanical or on the surface of things. You know, it's like when the mind, you, with your rising and falling and the mind sort of says rising, falling. And then after a while you realize when it says rising, it's actually falling. <laughs> or, or, you know, you sit here and you think, stepping, stepping. And you remember you're sitting here and it's really rising and falling. Or you're at the in-breath and the out-breath and the in-breath. You wonder, you know. She's still there, yes. In-breath, out-breath. And it's a bit boring. It's really the sign that tells you being half-hearted, being mechanical. And it's that's at that time when we can look at what it would take to make the meditation interesting again. And what it takes is just the effort, just the willingness to say, I'm going to put my whole being again into whatever, the breath, the walking, or, or the knee pain. And that totality of being with, again, brings that mental factor of interest or even a fascination 
up again. And here too, sometimes it works and sometimes we just don't have the energy anymore and it doesn't. But basically that's what it takes. In a specific concentration practice, as we're talking about here, when the continuity is sustained and deepened, then happiness, the force of those jhana factors, sukha, will arise. It's a smoother, calmer, mellower, but deeper kind of joy. To illustrate, like the first is bliss or piti or rapture, like when one obtains a desired object, it's like thrilling, you know, one got it, excited kind of joy. And the uh, second one, happiness or sukha, is like enjoying that object, you know, finally being with it, so it's a more mellow kind of joy. So there's aspiration, appreciation, rapture, bliss, happiness. Eventually, very little effort is needed to sustain or focus on the object. And one gets so concentrated that the bliss cools out. It's almost like it's too, it's almost like a bit restless, that kind of intensity. And eventually even happiness is left behind. And the fifth factor, the one-pointedness, comes to the foreground. The quality of one-pointedness, ekagata, is a mental factor common to all those absorptions or jhanas. It has been compared to a steady flame in a windless place or a firmly fixed pillar that cannot be shaken. Also, it's like water that binds together several substances to form one solid concrete compound, perhaps like water that binds cement and sand into concrete. This a kakata causes the mind to be totally focused on the object, causes unwavering stability in the object. And with it arises equanimity, which in a way could be said to cause a corresponding emotional stability and perfect equipoise. To cultivate concentrative or meditative absorption or jhana. The Buddha has recommended 40 objects of concentration. They're chosen according to the purpose of the meditation and according to the suitability for the different characters and in the tendencies of the meditator or the yogi. And for those who are interested, the 40 are linked, uh, listed in such texts as the Greater Satipatthana Sutta and in the Visuddhimagga and elsewhere. These 40 subjects of concentration are such things as the so-called 10 casinas, the different forms and colors one concentrates on. They include the 10 stages of a, decay, a decaying corpse where one contemplates from a dead body to a bloated, sort of blue, festering corpse, you know, to various 
stages of decay to the scattered corpse down to the stages of just the skeleton and I think the tenth stage is maybe you know the dust blown here and the dust of the bones blown here and there by the wind um, as you might guess it's designed to counteract attachment attachment to and craving for body designed to counteract passion so in a way you can see how it's important that objects are chosen in um, dependence on one's tendencies it's more like the greed type you know sort of goes for things ah and then meditates on this kind of object is sort of put right back into center if it's an aversion type you know is already like this much you know in that, that kind of attitude it's not very helpful it will just reinforce that kind of tendency in one so there are ten reflections on the beautiful qualities of the Buddha beautiful qualities of Dharma or of Sangha such as great compassion deep wisdom and all these other great virtues and then these are more helpful for the aversive mind brightening it calming it establishing it in a joyful balance then there are the four Brahma-viharas that's loving-kindness or metta it's great compassion or karuna a sympathetic joy or mudita and equanimity or equality in our relationship to beings these four I think are extremely helpful and transforming meditations and I'll talk about them in a couple of days or three days and you're familiar at least with the loving-kindness or metta meditation it can be done as a concentration practice that actually leads into absorption or jhana and again one basically repeats the phrases from wake up in the morning to falling asleep including when one wakes up in the night while sitting, while walking, while eating, while going to the bathroom it's quite different from, from the mindfulness practice it's very interesting and very powerful practice to do next there's the contemplation on the repulsiveness of food and the contemplation of the four elements in one's body and some others and the last four are the four formless states of boundless space, boundless consciousness, boundless nothingness and needed perception or non-perception which is said to be the limit of possible experience in this existence and these last four refer to the so-called formless jhanas meditative concentration and absorption 
can have very deep transforming power depending on the object we meditate on. Imagine you, get, you go in those deep, deep absorptions with metta as your object or with compassion as your object. And yet for real liberation, what is needed is insight. What is needed is insight into the characteristics, into the nature of things. Concentration by itself does not have the power to free the mind. But it is very helpful in order for us to see more clearly. A sutra says, when the workings of the mind have been harmonized through concentration, one sees things according to their true nature. So vipassana really is very central. Vipassana means seeing clearly, seeing in that specific way, seeing the things the way they are. It's also translated as a special seeing. In vipassana one focuses a steady and concentrated mind on the actual nature of things on the characteristics of all experience and will be present with the breath, with the walking, with all the different sense experiences, sense objects that arise and include emotions, feelings, thoughts and all that. But as we go on, what is important is that we more and more shift the attention on the actual nature of those experiences. Eventually, it doesn't really matter what you're looking at and whether you have a so-called nice or a so-called not nice meditation. It totally doesn't matter. Whatever comes and goes is the right stuff to look into, to see what it's made up of, what its nature is like. And all things having the same nature, you can see that whether there is anger or irritation or, or confusion or, or calm or breath, or sound or whatever whatever comes is just the right thing to look into its nature so in doing what we're doing here more and more we shift to becoming aware of the characteristics of all experience such as its impermanent changing nature such as its unsatisfactory nature such as the absence of a self, an I or me, that can be grasped within this process of perception and experience that we call I, or looking into the insubstantial, ungraspable, empty nature of all things. So when we focus on an object such as the breath, we could say, just the being with the breath in a focused way, we practice concentration or samatha. And when, maybe at the same moment, we look and inquire to see the nature of that experience, we could say we practice insight or vipassana. Both are important, both are necessary, and they can go together. In a way, we're practicing a union of the two. Now, depending on the tradition, there are different ways one is supposed to progress through the levels of deepening insight. 
in the Vipassana practice of many Theravadan schools in Asia, the various stages of insight are sometimes called Vipassana jhanas, as I already mentioned. And these do refer to insights more than to concentration. So, this topic of insight brings us to the fifth and last of these object ascertaining factors, these tools of human development and liberation. The first was aspiration, then appreciation, then mindfulness, and now we've had concentration. And the last one is intelligence, or insight, or wisdom, panya, or prajna. Now in this system, and that's not in every system the same, to make things a little more complicated, it's translated as, or it's called intelligence, because again, like the other four, it can be wholesome, unwholesome or neutral. That means intelligence can create destructive weapons, so it's connected with unwholesome qualities of mind. Or it can be used in spiritual practice, which means it's connected with, hopefully, with wholesome qualities of mind. And it's only the wholesome aspect of intelligence that really can be called wisdom or that we call insight here. Again, intelligence is not something we don't have. Obviously, we all have a basic intelligence. But here too, we need to cultivate it further. Or, if you prefer that image, we need to connect with it over and over again. And there are four kinds. The first is innate intelligence. It's the intelligence we're born with. Little kids are very quick in learning things, in crawling, walking, speaking. There's that ability to learn things that we didn't know previously. This kind of intelligence varies from individual to individual. Second is intelligence derived from listening and learning. And it refers to all our acquired knowledge we get from schools, from books, and from all the ways we can acquire knowledge. I feel that also in Dharma practice, listening, learning and studying the Dharma can be of very great value. It provides a strong support on our way when we know enough to really understand what we're doing here. We'll be much clearer about why we do what on our path. It creates clear motivations and intentions and it makes us more skillful and more steady. I've been saying that for almost 10 years now and people sort of hear it and they read maybe another book or a few books. And so far there's not been that much interest in real study. Um, last year in one city in Switzerland, a number of people said, you keep on saying this, so maybe we should, we want to try it. You know, can you suggest some book? And I suggested a really dry one, but that is, you know, very helpful in actually explaining very systematically what we're doing. And there were between five and nine people, they were all women, there's not one man among them. And they started on their own over a year now, a meeting every so often, and reading, you know, one chapter and then meeting and discussing. And after nine months, I asked them, one or two of them, what it did for them. And they said, it's really 
amazingly helpful. Um, it is as if, and many of them have practiced for a long time, it's as if we had a different kind of basis for what we're doing for our practice. It's like well, you can see it in, in a sitting or in a retreat, but also outside we go through these swings and sometimes things go well and we're really motivated and we practice and we do a lot. And then when that mood sort of fizzles out, we don't know exactly why we're doing it. There's nothing, you know, we don't remember because somehow, you know, that kind of... Everybody who is with a, a sitting group that meets weekly or two-weekly can see that phenomena. You know, they go from 12 or 15 people after a retreat to one person who comes in, opens, you know, sits down for 45 minutes, closes and leaves, goes home again. Um, with a very, or with a reasonably solid understanding of what we do, we're less dependent on the right mood with our practice. Third is intelligence or wisdom derived from reflection, from reasoning, from thinking and contemplating and resolving what's unclear. It's really already a kind of meditation. It's not the kind we do here mostly, but it's one we have been talking about and I find incredibly helpful. It is really important that we reflect on the most relevant realities of life over and over again. We don't need to spend hours to reflect on it, but to just give it some thought like reflecting on the precious situation as humans. We know already we have it, but that's not the point. It's to think about and to rethink it. And you can even just remember five points and use the same five, just think them over for two minutes. Reflecting on impermanence and death and the fact that things are impermanent and we don't know how long we're going to be here. And we know that, but if we look into our mind, it's so amazing how much we don't really know it. I mean, how many times we find ourselves living as if, it, as if it were forever. And then if we sort of catch a glimpse of the possibility that this might not last, it somehow awakens us. It really changes our whole way of being, at least for that moment. Very helpful to reflect on karma on the effects our actions have on ourselves. On the effects, it's actually what's behind our action, what motivates our actions, and what that, what that does to ourselves. And the reason why it's so important to over and over think about it is that we start to become really aware that every moment matters so much. Sometimes we think of karma as something we do every now and then. We do an action and that will create karma, you know, like I'll be generous and I'll make some good karma. But there's no moment in the day that we don't make karma. Of course, it's not always um, big, you know, powerful things we do. But it's like the drop that fills the bucket. Every move we do is motivated by either what we want and what we don't want and what we ignore or by 
letting go and openness and kindness. So it's really on all the time. And it's very important that we reflect on that over and over to be aware that practice is happening all the time. And when we're unmindful and we just aren't present, it practices what it always practiced. It practices, if we were mostly greedy, it will practice being greedy. If we were mostly aversive, it'll practice being aversive. To be aware of that, you know, the tendency that is lived right now will be strengthened unless we decide moment to moment to strengthen different tendencies as we do here, as we do in retreat. Strengthening awareness, strengthening openness, strengthening allowing equanimity, patience, and all that. So it's interesting to just think. If you if you would think three minutes on karma every day, very powerful. Thinking on dependent arising, thinking on what Thich calls into being, the fact that all things are connected, and Every moment in myriad ways produces the next moment. Things keep on turning into another thing and becoming another thing. And what we are and who we are is really the sum of a lot of conditions that came together in this way right now. And they continue developing in many ways. Seeing that, becoming aware of that day in, day out, gives us a very acute sense, not just of the interconnectedness of all beings, which is a very powerful um, realization, but also of the emptiness of something. If it is in constant motion, turning from one thing into another without ever being one thing for more than a moment, it becomes very obvious how it cannot really be substantial. It cannot really be graspable. So again, that kind of reflection too can be very uh, revealing and also very freeing. So this kind, uh, I think Christina also mentioned um, reflection on um, compassion. Obviously, that's very powerful. Or doing the kind of meditation we do when we do metta. So contemplation and reflection is a very powerful tool for transformation and it translates quite directly into our everyday life. Fourth is intelligence that comes from meditation. It's the wisdom and insight that arises from deeper inquiry through concentration, mindful awareness and clear seeing. Defined the mental factor that has the specific function of fine discrimination or discernment. discernment. It examines the characteristics or the value of a recollected object. It is similar to an eye that beholds things that were previously hidden. Or it is similar to a lamp that illumines concealed phenomena. In terms of practice, there are two areas or functions of intelligent wisdom. One is the wisdom of clear discernment, 
and the other is the wisdom that realizes the true nature of things. Clear discernment refers to the ability to clearly see what is wholesome and skillful and what's unwholesome and unskillful. And it's not just in a reflective way, but seeing it directly in our mind at work. In other words, to see clearly what creates suffering for ourselves and others and what creates happiness and serenity. And to clearly understand karma from seeing how it works, the cause and effect relationship of our actions, of body, speech and mind. A text says, out of bitter seeds, bitter fruits are born. Out of sweet seeds, sweet fruits. By this example, the wise should know the bitter results of unwholesome deeds and the sweet results of wholesome, deeds, wholesome ones. In other words, wisdom of clear discernment understands that in the long run it is our action and the intention and motivation behind it that create in a conflict and suffering or in a peace, balance and serenity. And again, maybe I'm repeating myself, but I like to make that point again. No matter how many retreats we do, no matter how much we sit in meditation, you know, cross-legged, our eyes closed, walking up and down, it's really our actions that will decide our future, that will decide where we go, that will decide whether we're creating more bondage or more openness and serenity and freedom. That's what really matters. And practicing the Dharma has directly to do with that. And insofar as sitting and walking in retreat helps that, makes that clear highlight, that and supports us in that. Insofar, meditation is very powerful. But unless it does that, then what? I mean, some people might like to sit like that, you know. You could also sit on a beach chair somewhere on the Riviera. Wouldn't really matter. So to be very clear what it is that practice really needs to be clear about and to take care of. The text says about karma and the power of karma. The wind may be caught by a leash. Sun and moon may fall down on earth. But the result of karma of our actions is infallible. Powerful statement. The second aspect of this meditative wisdom is the wisdom that realizes the true nature of things. It's the clear seeing of the insubstantial, non-self-existent, empty nature of all phenomena, all things, all experience. The wisdom that sees through the illusion of an abiding self-entity or, or solid I or me within ourselves. And it's the seeing through the illusion of any kind of abiding essence or self-existence in anything, anywhere anywhere in the universe. Nagarjuna describes what happens when we look more and more closely in meditation. He says, forms that we see from a distance become clearer as we come closer, isn't it? The closer we come, the clearer we see what it is. So if a mirage, a Fata Morgana, 
really is water. Why does it fade when we come closer? Similarly, the further from the world and from things we are, the more real it seems to be. While the closer we come to it, the more it fades, the less we can grasp it and, you know, take hold of it, the more it seems to become signless, like a mirage. So things are not what they seem to be. And when meditation is deep and clear, the wisdom that sees the true nature realizes the ungraspability and substantiality of all things. And seeing that, sensing that, lets go, releases all holding of the mind and the heart. Freedom comes from realizing this ultimate reality of things being ungraspable, being mere appearance, seemingly born, but really unborn. That is different from experiencing a powerful, deep state of peace, joy, and harmony, as one does in the deep jhanas of concentration. It's different because it does not depend on conditions who create that state. It is not a state that we try to get to and hold on to. It's not made up by conditions. It is unconditioned. It's only this kind of wisdom that really has the power to uproot negative emotions. Not just suppress them, keep them at bay, but uproot them, and eventually to fully liberate the heart and mind. I'd like to close with a poem by Suryadas. Life and death race like the weaver's shuttle. A mountain bird calls, its meaning is clear. While clouds come and go, the blue sky remains. Awakening after a dream, I gaze at auburn fields of autumn. What troubles my heart? I remember not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.